I V M. Welcome to All Things Policy, a daily podcast by the Takshashila Institution. We are a bunch of policy nerds based in Bengaluru, and we like bringing fresh perspectives to Indian affairs and Indian perspectives to global affairs. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and join us for today's chat. Hello there, and welcome to All Things Policy. Folks, over the last few years, you've probably seen billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos talk loudly and also very publicly about their space dreams. Uh, you've probably heard about and seen some of the impressive accomplishments of their companies like SpaceX or Blue Origin. Uh, you know, so space has gone commercial all over the world, and it's quietly bringing some of the you know some of the innovation, the speed, the competitive prices that are you know so characteristic of private sector competition anywhere. And now this commercial space industry in India is just getting going, but we've already seen some impressive developments, and that's why. Pradeep Mohandas and I today are so thrilled to be joined by Aves Ahmed. Aves is uh, the CEO of Pixel. Now, Pixel is a startup, uh, a space tech startup in Bangalore, and uh, they're aiming to put out this whole constellation of Earth imaging satellites into orbit. They've also built their first private commercial Earth imaging space satellite. Firstly, Aves, welcome to All Things Policy, and congratulations on your new satellite. Thank you so much uh, for having me. It's been, uh, uh, yeah, it's been a long journey and a fun journey. I'm finally happy to have the satellite ready to go next month. I can imagine. Okay, I want to start by asking you, firstly, you know, why you got into this business? Uh, you know, this is a fairly regulation-heavy business even today. What got you inter- interested in uh, space in the first place? Um, so I think the most uh, basic answer to that is I've always loved space. I believe as kids, every one of us is fascinated by the stars, by the universe. And uh, I was the same. That got sort of kindled in me by, you know, my dad getting me space-related books and, you know, getting telescopes and uh, and all that. So there's always that love for space and it got... Uh, uh, it went into the the back of the mind like it does and, you know, got into the ratteries of getting into engineering college and whatnot. But while at BITS, where I was studying and pursuing my undergraduate studies, there were a couple of experiences that we kindled back, uh, that love for space and that this is the sector and the industry for me to be in. This is what I would want to, to work on. Um, and those two experiences were, one, uh, in my first year at college, I was part of a student satellite team that was working with ISRO. Uh, under their student satellite program. So I learned how to build hardware that would actually go to space and you know, survive there for quite some time. And the second experience was being the founding team member and engineering lead at Hyperloop India. Uh, Elon Musk uh, rekindled this concept and SpaceX built a one-mile-long vacuum tube at their headquarters where they said, you know, it's an open challenge to teams around the world to build vehicles or hyperloop pods that could travel at really fast speeds inside that tube. And out of the 2,400 global teams that had applied, we were uh, the only Indian team to be selected. Uh, and we manufactured the hyperloop pod. We took it to the SpaceX headquarters in Los Angeles. We presented it to Elon and the team. And um, there they took us on the tour of the SpaceX factory, you know, seeing rockets and engines being built that would go to space touching the Falcon 9 booster that first landed back on Earth, the first ever reusable rocket to land back on Earth. All that rekindled that love. And uh, at that point, I decided that this is the space for me to be in. And after coming back, just read up as much as I could about space. What is the cutting edge? What are the gaps and the opportunities? And 
you know how i can contribute uh, starting a startup came as a byproduct of that and never that you know this is something that i would want to start it just seemed like the fastest and the best way to do what i loved that's how it began so I didn't really think about the regulations and the challenges that would come uh, like as elon says you know if something is important enough you do it even if the odds are against you so that's i think why the decision was taken it's simply because i think i love space that is very cool and probably the best reason to get going in such a business i want to now move on to your satellite but before we talk about the satellite itself you named it anand uh, can you tell us why anand is um, that sort of like a very uh, personal reason and an important reason for the team as well so we had an intern by the name of anand that worked with us a couple of years ago uh, and for some reasons after he went back to college he committed suicide uh, so at that point we decided that you know given his contribution we should name the satellite after him uh, that's why it's named anand uh, it's completely in his memory and so that we can uh, in some way uh, you know respect the contribution he did for us Oh, wonderful. Okay. Uh, now tell us uh, about Anand itself. Uh, what is the satellite uh, going to do? Uh, and what does it take to build such a satellite? Um, so the first satellite for us is a demonstration mission. It's an experimental mission, uh, tech demonstrator mission, right? The plan, as you said, is... you know when we started out we looked at what the existing satellite data that was available was um when i came back from spacex and started diving into the space sector um started with analyzing satellite imagery along with you know artificial intelligence and machine learning to see what are the outputs that could come from this valuable data set things like air pollution monitoring water pollution monitoring agricultural pest detection and the sort but realize that uh, even today uh, most satellite data that's valuable is very expensive uh, you don't really get uh, easy access to that and it cannot even see certain problems so there was a an opportunity to build a better class of imager uh, that could beam down data that could help us see more things which is why our tagline of seeing the unseen also comes here because for example if you are looking at methane leaks or carbon monoxide leaks or if you are looking at pest infestation detection that's something that our camera is built to do uh, that existing satellites cannot not to take me wrong existing satellites still can do a whole host of things but there's blind spots that they are those are the blind spots that you would want to cover by helping the world see the unseen problems um and in in that process you know we wanted to build a constellation of about 30 satellites that could provide global coverage every day to see these problems uh, at a very high resolution and to cover it uh, no matter where we are looking on earth create a health monitor for the planet so as to say and to do that we had to show that this type of satellite was uh, possible this type of camera was possible in the first place so the tech demo mission we you know designed the satellite um, in the most basic sense it's not going to be the same satellite that we go as a constellation satellite we are working on a iterative model the first satellite that we built is in its most basic sense something that will go up that will turn towards the earth that will stabilize itself and take images of the earth that's what we intend to do with anand um, and uh, that's the even if anand goes up next month and beams down just a few images uh before uh, you know dying out uh, it would have still completed its purpose that's what we're looking at uh, from anand yeah now just again to get back to the basics uh, what are the building blocks of a satellite like anand uh, how do you make it you can think of it like an autonomous computer that has a camera attached to it whose purpose is to make sure that the camera points to the earth and you know takes images uh and it's powered by solar panels and batteries and uh, you know control systems it can control it so it's essentially an autonomous robot up there in space 
that has been programmed to turn towards the earth, take images and stabilize itself so that the images are clear. And the different components that come here, of course, is one, the onboard computer. How do you program uh, it to autonomously operate because you cannot be in communication with it all the time. The other component is the communication uh, subsystem where you have these radios and antennas because you still need to be able to send commands through your ground stations uh, up to the satellite. Uh, the power subsystem would be another where you need solar panels to take power from the sun and you need batteries to store that power when uh, you know the sun is not available during the eclipse phase of the orbit and you have the control system where uh, you have certain actuators and sensors that make a sense of okay which direction is my satellite pointing in how do i bring this uh, pointing direction back to the earth and take images and stabilize it that's broadly it you know uh, there's a there's a computer there's a software that runs the computer there's this you know power aspects to it communication aspects to it and the control aspects to it uh, and of course the camera which needs to take images all right and these would be basically be the components that you would see even in your final constellation of 30 satellites that's right? correct and in the most basic sense this is what all satellites would consist of all right, sure. Now, uh, when this uh, constellation of 30 satellites does go up, uh, what uh, at what altitude would they be orbiting the Earth uh, and what geographies would they cover? So geographically, as I said, it's going to be global coverage, no matter where um, we need to take images, we would be able to do that. Uh, and at a frequency of every 24 hours, in terms of the height uh, that they would be in the altitude of the satellites, that would be... Uh, between 500 and 600 kilometers to so the lower Earth orbit, uh, 500 or 600 kilometers to the surface of the Earth. So after the uh, satellite, uh, you know, the next important thing is how do you put the satellite uh, into orbit? So you all made an interesting decision, like you had first uh, arranged for this launch on a Soyuz and then you all moved uh, to uh, ISRO's PSLV C-51. Uh, can you share something about what drove that decision? When we decided to go with uh, Soyuz rocket, uh, the reforms in India were not yet announced. There was no clarity on how an Indian satellite would launch from an Indian rocket. There was the 18% GST factor to consider in the cost because that adds up to quite a huge chunk. And um, there was no process for a private entity to launch from India because this was before the reforms were announced, you know, the middle of last year. So that is why we decided to go with someone who had experience launching international customers. And for us, cost-wise and timeline-wise, Soyuz was the, the best option logically, um, even though we would uh, have wanted to launch from India. But as I said, there was no mechanism or procedure for a private company to do that. That is why we had booked it there. But once the reforms were announced last year and a few months after that, uh, the temporary in-space was set up the independent regulatory body that's supposed to be the uh, one-stop shop for everything private space related in India. And uh, we started talking to them and, you know, they, um, given that there was a, the process here, there was formalities, regulations, everything was sort of starting to get more transparent and clear. Uh, it just, you know, one was the Soyuz launch got delayed a couple of times from uh, July slash August of 2020 when it was supposed to launch. Due to COVID, it got pushed to December and then it got pushed further to March slash April of this year, 2021, due to the request of the primary satellite. As a secondary and smaller satellite, we do not uh, call the shots on the timeline. The primary bigger satellite does. So um, since that got pushed, you know, and the reforms were announced, um, we were having a, a talk with the Department of Space and ISRO anyway. And, you know, there was this opportunity that came up that there's a launch 
happening in February, which is quite uh, a few weeks earlier than the other launch. And uh, logistically, COVID-wise, traveling all the way to Russia and then to Baikonur, you know, seemed like a hassle. Um, So taking all those factors into consideration, we shifted the launch here. It just, you know, it's it's one, it's a matter of pride for us that an Indian-built satellite is being launched from an Indian-built rocket. Uh, But it also is logistically uh, and otherwise it just makes us, makes it a whole lot easier for us to launch from here. Yeah, that's wonderful. The other thing that you uh, slightly touched upon in your answer uh, was about in space, uh, you know, the regulatory and authorization body that uh, ISRO has set up. What are your thoughts on that? Like, how is it set up? Yeah, Yeah, first broad thoughts, since quite a few times, the space community in India was asking for an independent regulatory body that was different from ISRO. What... Under the Department of Space, you had ISRO, you had Antrix, um, and you recently had New Space India Limited. So the commercial aspects, the regulatory aspects, and the scientific and research aspects were all muddled into sort of, you know, the same entity that was doing everything. It became very clear that for this private space industry to take off, there needed to be an independent regulatory body that's decoupled from the scientific and research goals that ISRO has. And that needs to be further decoupled from the commercial aspirations of selling slots on the PSLV or selling imagery from the existing satellites. So once the directive came right from the top, from the finance ministry and the prime minister's office, that you know this is a space that needs to be um, that needs to be liberalized. Having an independent regulatory agency like InSpace was obviously the first step because it you know creates this clear-cut demarcation that the same people who are also operators are also not regulators, which is um, a big, uh, you know, conflict ground. The second is in-space also becomes the single window of clearance for everything license and authorization related, which is the step up from a few other countries that are leading in space. If you take a look at the United States, you still have to go to NOAA and to the FCC separately if you have to look at sending an Earth imaging satellite. But in India, if you are launching an Earth imaging satellite in space, is just single window of clearance for you. So it makes it very easy for any startup uh, in India, a space startup in India, and they know who to reach out to for anything space related. You want to launch a satellite, you talk with InSpace. You want to launch a rocket, you talk with InSpace. InSpace then coordinates between the different entities like the you know, Department of Telecom or the Home Ministry or um, ISRO or the Department of Space, which keeps, uh, you know, uh, the internal motivation sort of clear. There's no conflict. So that's, that's sort of great. One thing that could be made clearer is, you know, the secretary of the Department of Space, the chairman of ISRO and the chairman of InSpace needs to be three different people so that, again, there's no conflict and um, uh, it's just much clearer. But it's a real great step in the right direction to liberalize these regulations because whenever certain regulations have been liberalized elsewhere, it just led to the booming of that sector. And I hope that this is also an indication of uh, the Indian private space sector booming. Yeah, I agree with you that uh, this is a great first step, like setting up of uh, InSpace. Uh, so in last December, uh, ISRO had put out a call for comments for these uh, draft uh, remote sensing policy and the space communications policy. As a builder of the remote sensing satellite, any thoughts that you would like to share about the draft remote sensing policy? Absolutely. No, I think first things first, what the situation was before was any satellite data to be disseminated in India was to be done through the National Remote Sensing Center, which was a part of ISRO. This meant that no matter who, which private company was selling to which private company in India, it had to go to the National Remote Sensing Center, get their authorization to be able to sell it. 
which was obviously not the most ideal of situations all that is done away in the you know the policy that has come out uh, any private company be it international or national can disseminate data up to you know uh, above a certain resolution because of national security concerns freely and uh, the interaction can happen like it would with any other goods and making that easy making that fast takes away the handicap that indian startups would have had where they needed to procure imagery or sell imagery the policy also is very uh, liberal and open in terms of indian satellite operators and imagers providing and selling imagery you know globally which is also great it removes any roadblocks in terms of speed and uh, logistics to sell this data certain things that could be made clearer is on the ground station aspects of it where you know um, if you have these ground stations taking authorization for each new satellite to beam down data is something that's not needed once you know an authorization for this particular ground station is taken or uh, there needs to be clarity in terms of the timelines that it would take to you know get these licenses and things approved uh, what the timeline for approval is uh, in the us for example they tell that within 60 days or 90 days of you submitting your application your application result will be made known to you so having the exact timelines for approval of various applications would be important I think the one uh, thing that could also be done is uh, restricting ground station activities only to Indian remote sensing satellites puts the ground station operators at a handicap. You know, there's companies like LeafSpace or KSAT globally that beam down imagery from a whole host of international satellites. And if Indian ground station operators need to, you know, make money and also build out the ecosystem, uh, there should be no restriction on any other international remote sensing satellites beaming down data. Of course, there need to be certain countries that are in the uh, in the list that they are not supposed to interact with can be kept out. But apart from that, there should be no restrictions. I think those would be the broad uh, comments there. It's a huge, huge step in liberalizing the space for selling data, usage of data. Uh, but a few things that obviously can be made better uh, for the policy. Yeah, we've definitely come a long way from uh, even just a year back. I mean, a, a year back, uh, Takshila had uh, proposed exactly this. You know, we proposed having an independent regulator, uh, like in space, um, and uh, and also having an organization to handle disputes. You know, a, a sort of a space equivalent of TDSAT in in the telecom sector. And what we've seen with in space is definitely uh, a huge advance, as well as the draft uh, remote sensing policy. Are there any specific areas, Abhis, uh, in the regulatory structure where you think uh, you know some changes can really make a big difference uh, for commercial space in India? I think the first thing would be, as I mentioned, uh, separating the people that are holding the posts of the Secretary of the Department of Space, Chairman of ISRO, and the Chairman of InSpace. Because the secretary, the chairman of InSpace reports to the secretary of uh, the Department of Space, and if the secretary of the Department of Space also happens to be the chairman of ISRO, you can see that there could be a potential conflict sometime down the line. Right now, there aren't because everyone is aligned to making sure that the private ecosystem takes off. But uh, putting that precedence in place could be sort of dangerous. So separating that in terms of the structure would be important, um, but also making sure that. Uh, in space is actually the single point of contact where communication is happening. There's clarity, there's transparency about the process that's happening. There's transparency about the timeline would be a major big step. Uh, and something else that also becomes important uh, in terms of the structure is to be able to take out some portion of the budget that ISRO has given and use it for early stage grants and funding to the private space startup so that the stage where most startups get killed where they are not even able to realize the prototype because no one's willing to put in that high risk money that could be taken care of if uh, a certain budget is kept aside for a few grants and more 
startups would come up and more solutions would come up and more the ecosystem would grow. Um, so broadly, these would be the things in terms of the larger structure that's there that would be made better. But apart from that, as I mentioned, it's even a little bit better than a few of the leading space nations where in space becomes a single window of clearance compared to the US where, you know, you have to still go to two entities to be able to get something done. Those would be my broad thoughts there. Okay. All right. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, no, so that's, but we just covered regulation. Now, more broadly, what would it require in the general uh, ecosystem of, uh, you know, the human resources available, the technology available for commercial space to really bloom in India? I mean, we are like, we, we've discussed really at, you know, this industry is at its infancy in India. Uh, what should it look like 10 years from now and what would that require? So what would it require would be that the government needs to be a big first buyer for a lot of the products that the private space ecosystem is building. If it's thrusters that someone like Bilitex Aerospace is building, ISRO should be a customer for buying these thrusters onto their satellites. If it is the satellite imagery that someone like Pixel is providing, then, you know, certain ministries should be the buyers for this data or the National Remote Sensing Center should be the buyer for this data. Or if someone like an Astrom is, you know, building communication satellites, uh, uh, the government should uh, use that technology to be able to, you know, disseminate it into the, the masses. So given that, you know, one is, as I mentioned, funding availability of grant funding is very critical because if you look at Europe, where the European Space Agency has business innovation centers to which they disseminate grants, or if you look at the US where they have a small business innovation research grants that are available, the reason why their ecosystems are sort of more booming and more advanced is because of the availability of that. But the second reason is the government is a big buyer of these resources, be it, you know, someone like a Leo Labs in the US where they help with debris tracking and the US government is a big buyer. Or Digital Globe has been selling imagery for quite some time. 75% of the revenue comes from the government. So to be able to do that where government actively encourages and buys from the private industry, even if they are not, you know, doing grant funding would be a critical aspect. Apart from that, making sure that uh, the foreign direct investment norms are uh, eased to bring in more investment because the biggest constraint for a hardware uh, capital intensive industry is the availability of uh, capital. And given that, you know, that's still at an infancy in terms of the amount of money that can go in compared to the US or Europe, uh, opening up, making it easier for anyone to invest in an Indian company, as well as encouraging other funds to set up here in India uh, and invest to, to make sure that this capital available as the ecosystem grows uh, will be important. And the third aspect is just companies within the ecosystem buying from each other, growing together, where if we are building satellites, we maybe work with the likes of Drua Space to set up a ground station. Drua Space works with someone else to help build something up. And then, you know, that inter-business within startups that are growing past in the ecosystem would be helpful. But one thing to be cognizant of is we should not build just for India. There'll be two, two tracks here. One is where existing capability will be privatized and the capabilities will be built predominantly for India. But where the growth will actually happen is if people truly innovate and build something from India for the world uh, and sell globally, because we do have advantages in terms of the talent that's available, as well as the cost ineffectiveness that comes from manufacturing here. So those would be broad thoughts in terms of what could be done from now till 10 years so that we are at a stage where we are competing globally with any company or startup that's come up in Europe or in the US or anywhere else. All right. You did mention, um, you know, uh, opening up uh, the sector to FDI. Uh, has uh, raising capital uh, been especially difficult or challenging in India? It and has, if so, why do you think so? It has been for sure. So I think we have also seen how it has grown over the last year. It's much better now than it was, I would say, 
12 to 18 months ago because we did a pre-seed round in early 2019 and then we did a seed round in you know middle of 2020 and uh, there was quite a bit of difference but it's still very early stages we haven't seen anyone raise more than a few tens of millions of dollars demand is being the one that raised the most but that was predominantly on the basis of uh, national pride and from a lot of angel investors and not in institutional funding uh, but we have very recently seen certain marquee funds also take interest in this space be it lightspeed and bloom that invest Investors or you know pie ventures that invested in agricultural land whatnot, um, so it's certainly grown. But we don't have uh, funds of the caliber that can put in you know a few tens of millions of dollars or a few hundreds of millions of dollars in space companies in India, which is where only global funds like Tiger Global or someone else uh, can come in and put in that money. Because uh, we have seen that money flowing into food tech startups or you know internet startups or e-commerce startups, for example. Uh, to be able to make that available for space is also something that uh, we'll need international capital. until the ecosystem here itself sort of grows but in terms of raising capital yes it has been quite difficult but we also have raised from a few north american investors uh, like ryan johnson who was the ceo of blackbridge that was a space company in canada we had to go both here and there to be able to do that uh, but uh, it's growing it's better than it was 18 months ago and the hope is that 18 months from now it'll be even better all right uh, so is there a reason that you identify for uh, for for this difficulty in uh, you know attracting those kind of funds in india is it that people don't understand the industry or consider it too risky the biggest reason i would say was the delay in putting up a liberalized regulatory structure in place when you don't have a policy in place where you know we could have built satellites 2 years ago but then there was no methodology or way for us to put it up in space or people could build rockets uh, and they weren't even sure whether they could build rockets because you know the same tech could be used for building missiles and what not so a lack of regulatory policy is something that was a big uh, uh, roadblock for funds coming in because one it's a very capital heavy industry if you put in money you need to put in a lot of money to make it work um, and if you're putting that much money if there's no regulatory clarity obviously it's a huge risk for them to be able to do that but one thing that's being helped is you know people are seeing the success stories that are coming up in european and us startup spacex is doing well rocket lab is doing well planet labs is doing well so seeing those success stories also makes people realize that yes it could be done in india as well but i would say the biggest reason for why we are a little bit lagging is the because the regulatory clarity has only come in recently uh, if it was there 5 years ago i would say we would uh, be you know much much further than we were all right so i think i think it's fairly clear that while we're moving in the right direction at least in terms of uh, regulation wait india does need to have a broader conceptual understanding of you know of of how it can encourage its uh, space industry you know because that's clearly a part of its you know general space economy strategically in all in all respects it's it's quite important to india uh, i want to conclude uh, avesh by asking you what about uh, your company itself once you get this constellation of 30 satellites up what's next Um, so the same technology that we're using for mapping the resources on the Earth can be used to map out resources on the Moon and the Mars. You know, two planetary bodies that are of immense interest to a lot of space agencies where they want to set up camps and uh, things. Uh, otherwise, um, so the same images can be used for identifying the water pockets, the mineral pockets that's available on the Moon and Mars. And um, we want to be able to democratize access to the solar system using the inexpensive satellites that we can build. So instead of spending you know hundreds of crores or hundreds of millions of dollars building a large orbiter to go to planetary bodies 
and having it fail, if you can send out tens of these smaller satellites, which would still cost lesser than that big one, you can send them out to multiple planetary bodies, get in initial indications of which ones are of interest, and then send the bigger orbiters uh, into the ones where you actually have interest of you know delving deeper. Uh, so that that's sort of where we are looking at working with space agencies to make sure that scientific access to the solar system and understanding of our solar system and space uh, becomes uh, easier because not a lot of difference in technology will be needed for us to do this to that uh, except uh, figuring out thrusters and fueling and, and the sort but you know that comes with time so that's what next for us but for now our focus is uh, you know just putting 30 satellites up there turning them towards the earth and then making sure that uh, we are using that data to make life on earth better that's awesome. Uh, putting up 30 sa satellites uh, is not a modest goal. So wish you all the best in that. Uh, your uh, uh, satellite's going to go up uh, next month. Is that correct? Uh, the PSRV C51? Correct. Yeah. It's scheduled for sometime second half of next month. And uh, we're almost ready with the satellite. So we are excited, but also nervous at the same time. Awesome. All the best to you. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on All Things Policy. Uh, we, I'm sure we'll have you back here again uh, to discuss your satellite, to discuss India's space industry. Uh, once again, thanks so much for joining us on All Things Policy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you liked our show, don't forget to check out other interesting podcasts on the IVM network. You can tune into them on the IVM podcast app, ivmpodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow IVM on social media. The handle is at IVM Podcasts on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And hey, if you'd like to dive into Takshashila's research on technology, strategy and economic affairs, check us out at our Twitter handle at Takshashila INST or our website takshashila.org.in.